It's great to be with you here tonight in, uh, in Anchorage. I was, uh, I was out running the day before yesterday in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and it was 106. <laughs> Today's 108. So uh, all of a sudden, I've gone from the hottest state in the United States on average, I think, to the, you are the coldest state, right? I think I, who can who can compete? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I lived in Minnesota for a while. We're definitely the darkest. Yeah. Oh, as long long time, long winters, long nights. Yeah. Good. Well, it's good to be here with you. And I too want to say, Jim Minery, can you stand up again? Some other people have come in here. Jim brought me up here. Jim is the head of the Alaska Family Council, right? Which is a Christian organization that seeks to influence government for good, yeah, uh, and seeks to especially promote laws that protect freedom of religion, protect marriage and family, and protect human life, especially the life of preborn children. So those are the three areas that they focus on, and they're doing a great job. We have something in Arizona, kind of a sister organization called Center for Arizona Policy, and you know Kathy Herod, who's the head of that, and uh, Kathy and her husband, Mike, who's also a lawyer, uh, happened to be in a home fellowship group with my wife, Margaret, and me. And they are meeting tonight. And they have, celebrating somebody's birthday, and they have ice cream and everything, and I'm missing it all. <laughs> so I'll just uh, say a little bit about my own background. Margaret and I have been married now 41 years. Whoa. And... Uh, we met, my, my parents moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin when I was 13, and I saw a 12-year-old girl there that I thought was cute, and she's my wife. <laughs> well, there's a little bit in between all that. We didn't get married till I was the old age of 21. But uh, we have three, three children, grown now. Elliot, 36, married, the pastor. Uh, Oliver is 33, and he is married, and he's a graphic designer and website designer in Minneapolis. And uh, Alexander is a high school history and social studies teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota. With two grandchildren. Eva is one, just starting to walk. And Hannah is five, going on 20. <laughs> Tries to organize everybody. It's a little bit frustrating. We're on vacation together, and we get up in the morning, she's got the whole day organized for everybody. And Margaret said, I know where she inherited it from. <laughs> I didn't say anything more. All right, well, for 29 years, <clears throat> I've taught at uh, seminaries. First, I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, for 20 years. And now, for nine years, uh, I've been teaching in Phoenix, Arizona, at Phoenix Seminary. And when I'm teaching these uh, courses, on, I've taught biblical ethics. And when I've taught on ethics, I taught on a number of topics that all of a sudden I realized they are relevant to political questions. I would teach on biblical teachings on abortion, on euthanasia, on what is a just war, and what is the pacifist theory that opposes war for Christians, and do I agree with that or not? I would teach on capital punishment. I would teach on biblical teachings on the rich and the poor and possession of property and ownership of property and the right role of government. And all of a sudden I realized a lot of these questions had relevance for political issues today. I would teach on the use of the natural creation and care for the environment and how we are to use it. And so um, after a while, 
I uh, began to think it might be good to write a book <clears throat> in this area, and I was, I was encouraged by two groups. One is the Center for Arizona Policy that's like the Alaska Family Council. Uh, they said when we go into churches, we hear people say, Christians don't have any business getting involved in influencing politics or government. That's not spiritual. That's not the work of the church. We shouldn't do anything like that. Do we have an answer for that? And then the other group was a group of lawyers called the Alliance Defense Fund. And near my home in Scottsdale, Arizona, there's the headquarters of the largest Christian legal defense group in the world. And they have, oh, they have a number of full-time employees there who are very smart lawyers. But then they have affiliated lawyers, including some here in Alaska. They have 1,800 lawyers around the country. And if, uh, you know, if a church wants to rent a school building and the, to, to meet in, because starting a new church, and the city council says, no, we'll let other groups meet here, but you, you can't meet here, you're a church, then the Alliance Defense Fund lawyers will go and defend them. And uh, they'll do a lot of other uh, legal cases as well, including arguing a lot of cases all the way to the Supreme Court. <clears throat> but they came to me and said, Wayne, we go to churches and people tell us Christians shouldn't be involved in trying to influence government and laws. That's not spiritual. We should just do the work of evangelism. Could you write something on that? And so I thought I would write something and a little book grew into a big book. Uh, so it came out uh, in September, uh, September 3rd, just 27 days ago. And Jim tried to get some here so we could uh, have them available for people, but Zondervan sold out in 12 days. And uh, so they had a second printing, that's gone. They had a third printing, that sold out in 12 days. They got a fourth printing in stock yesterday. <clears throat> so we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm really thankful for it. And it seems to be meeting a need where people say, well, I want a Bible-based approach to how Christians should influence government and politics. And I'll tell you in one sentence the summary of the book before I go on to the details. A summary of the book is that Christians, I think that's most of you, have a biblical responsibility to influence government for good. To influence government for good. That's the key phrase that I want you to take away. And now what I want to explain is why I think that and then some specific issues. What I'll do here for about 30 minutes or so, let's see, Sean, do we have that? I know where it is. It's right here. I want to just watch this clock. My teaching assistant, Sean Reynolds, you want to stand up? Sean has come up to Alaska with me. We've never been to Alaska, either of us, before. Sean has been a youth pastor in California, and now he's a great, outstanding seminary student at Phoenix Seminary. What I want to do for about 30 minutes, I want to walk through five wrong views of Christian involvement in politics and tell you why I think they're wrong. And I'm going to propose what I think is the right view, I already told you, significant Christian influence in government. And then we'll break for some Q&A. And after we've had some time for you to ask questions, interact with me, disagree with me if you wish, then I want to take a second session where I take about 30 more minutes and walk through some of the chapters in the book, because the book covers about 60 political issues, from abortion to Zimbabwe. I don't have much to say about Zimbabwe, actually. <laughs> but that's in the index. Um, so, uh, so I'll give you an overview of what I think about what's wrong with the court system in the United States, a little bit about 
uh, economics and national debt and taxation and policies of government in that way. And then if you want to ask me about other issues, immigration, Israel, right to bear arms, um, just war, uh, Iraq war, war on terrorism, use of the environment, global warming, I don't know, whatever you want to ask about, and we can talk about those things. All right, then we'll be done. So <clears throat> if you want this book, it's not available here. <laughs> but it is on Amazon.com. And it's at ChristianBook.com. So there are places, uh, barnesandnoble.com, same. So we're going to start out now with five wrong views about Christian influence in politics. Wrong view number one, government should compel religion. This is the view that says government should try to force everybody to follow a certain religion. This is the view of Saudi Arabia today where if you live in Saudi Arabia, you have to go to the mosque, you have to go to prayers, uh, that are, uh, and you have to follow the Islam, uh, Muslim religion by law. And you can't, if you belong to another religion, you can't practice it there because the government compels religion. It enforces it. Now you think, hey, wait, it's only Muslims that hold that? No. Unfortunately, there were Christian groups that held this compel religion view in previous centuries. In the 16th and 17th century, there were the wars of religion in Europe where Protestants and Catholics had armies that fought back and forth for control of territory. And if the Catholics won, then everybody in that territory was a Catholic. And if the Protestants won, everybody was a Protestant. And then among the Protestants, the Reformed people and the Lutherans and the Anabaptists battled back and forth as well in the wars of religion. A terrible mistake. And eventually, people realized that this compel religion view was inconsistent with the teachings of the Bible. And the bottom line, the reason why compel religion does not fit the teachings of the Bible is that genuine faith cannot be forced. If you've raised children, you know that. You can't force your children to trust in Christ as Savior. You can bring them to church, you can teach them the Bible, but it's a decision they have to make themselves. And so trying to get the government to force everybody to follow a certain religion is just counterproductive. It really doesn't lead people to genuine faith. It can't be compelled. There's a story in the gospel about Jesus when he was going through a village of the Samaritans in Luke 9. And it says he came to one of the Samaritan villages and they didn't receive him. His disciples, James and John, said, Lord, do, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? A brilliant evangelistic strategy. I mean, if lightning had come from heaven and burned that village to a crisp, they would have had 100% attendance at the next village. But it says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. He didn't want to compel people to believe in him because genuine faith cannot be forced. When Jesus approaches people, he invites people to believe in him. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invites people to follow him. And that's the message of the Bible. Joshua says to the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. He appeals to their voluntary decision to choose to follow God. Another reason that the compel religion view is wrong is that Jesus made a distinction between the realm of Caesar and the realm of God. The Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew 22 and said, 
is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, show me a coin. So they gave him a denarius. And he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus answered, therefore render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Well, in saying that, Jesus implied it is right to pay taxes to Caesar because that was Caesar's inscription or face on the coin. But he also implied that there's a realm that Caesar has no business intruding in. There's the realm of that which is Caesar's and there's the realm of that which is God's. And that which is God's is what church you go to and what faith you hold to and what religion you have. And that's an area that Caesar should keep hands off of and not try to compel people to believe in them. So, Jesus is marking a difference from the system under the Mosaic Covenant with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. There, the people of Israel were under, <clears throat> all the people in Israel were under the religious laws. In the Old Testament, you would be punished if you spoke blasphemy or took God's name in vain, if you decided you wanted to promote the worship of other idols, other, other gods, um, and if you didn't follow the religious laws of sacrifice in the people of Israel. But that's because the, the, the civil government and the religious government were all the same in the Old Testament. Moses was the head of the nation of Israel, and he was the head of the people of God in Israel. David was the head of the nation of Israel, and he was the head of the people of God. Solomon was the head. But in the New Testament, Jesus says there's a realm of Caesar, and there's a realm of God, and they're distinct. And so when we find how to choose leaders... For the New Testament church, Paul doesn't just say, go choose the city council and they're your leaders in the church. They're your elders and your pastor. When he writes to Timothy, who is in the city of Ephesus, and he wants to tell them how to choose elders in the church, he says they have to be men of good repute, husband of one wife, not quarrelsome or violent, not a drunkard. Um, etc., and uh, they have to be above reproach, and probably when you choose leaders in the church, you look at those qualifications. But Paul doesn't say, hey, you want elders in your church in Ephesus? Go to the city council. They're your elders. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that the civil government is automatically ruling over the church, but there are distinct realms. That's because the gospel goes to all people, and it's not one nation, and there's not a compulsion to follow Christ on the part of the government. So, first error is government should compel religion. That's wrong. And that means that as Christians involved in government, the first principle we must always affirm is freedom of religion. We need to protect people's freedom of religion. A couple nights ago, I was speaking at a church in, uh, in Gilbert, Arizona. I'm driving down Elliott Avenue to get to the church, and I see off to my right, before I get to the church, I see a Buddhist temple. There's a sign up there. It says Buddhist temple. And I have two thoughts. First, I think, I'm sorry there's a Buddhist temple there because it means people are following Buddhism, and, I don't, and, and that means they're not following Jesus Christ. And I think if you're going to know God truly, you have, to follow, you have to come to him through Jesus Christ. So I'm sad for that. But then there's a second thought in my heart. I'm saying... God, I'm really happy that I live in a country where Buddhists have the freedom to build a temple and where that freedom is protected and they can put up a sign saying Buddhist temple and advertise. I'm thankful for that and I want to protect that because that same freedom of religion that protects them protects us and gives us the right to have a church. 
And so, first principle, protect freedom of religion. Now, I know that somebody's going to ask, so I'm going to talk about it just really quickly. Should we have the right, or should Muslims, therefore, have the right to build mosques? And should Muslims have the right, therefore, to build a mosque right next to Ground Zero in New York City? Um, here's my own opinion on that. You can disagree with me if you wish. I think we need to protect the freedom of Muslims to build mosques in this nation. That's part of protecting freedom of religion. But that doesn't mean that they have to build a mosque right there. It's too inflammatory. It's too, it, it raises the tensions between people too much. It's like a stick-in-your-eye kind of um, inflammatory nature to build a mosque right there where Muslims, following their interpretation of Islam, destroyed the World Trade Center. So, yes, build a mosque, but not right there. How about a few more blocks away? Some other place. Let's get another building. Um, that would be my own opinion, anyway. Okay, error number one, government should compel religion. Error number two is the opposite. That's the error that says government should exclude religion. Keep it out of the public square. This is the idea that you should keep your religion at home and quiet, where it's not going to trouble anybody. This is the view that says, take down the Ten Commandments from any walls of public buildings or schoolhouses. It says, take the Christmas display out of the city park. It says... Um, in some cases, you can't get zoning to even have a Bible study in our neighborhood. Some cities have started to do that, in private, to rule it out in private homes. Keep your religion out of sight, keep it at home. This is the view of an organization called the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. This is also the view of, well, at least it tends to be, now nah, I'm misrepresenting this other group. There's another group that opposes Christian influence often in government. You mentioned it. It's the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, and they're their leader, Barry Lynn, I was on a radio debate with him just like three days ago. Um, but the ACLU definitely promotes this. Keep religion out of the public square. The reason I disagree with that view is that Romans 13.4 tells me that the civil authority, the civil government, is God's servant for your good. And that, that's re that was referring to Nero, the the pagan Roman emperor. But Paul says there's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Let every person be subject to the governing authority, and the governing authority is God's servant for your good. Therefore, if the governing authority is God's servant, how can that authority know what God wants him to do unless Christians are able to say, here's what the Bible says, and here's what God's purposes are for government. About a year and a half ago, I was, had the opportunity to be in Albania. Albania is the first country north of Greece. It's now the poorest country in Europe, although it's developing economically. It's a former communist country, but it came out of communism. It's very pro-American, pro-Western now because of their experience of communism. Well, I thought I was going to speak to some Christians involved in the business world and in government about economic development and biblical principles and how poor countries can develop economically. When we got there, we found out that the people who invited us had arranged for us to meet with the Prime Minister of Albania, uh, Prime Minister Sali Berisha, a highly educated man, a cardiologist, speaks English quite well, 
He was a strong anti-communist, and when they overthrew the communists, he came into leadership. Well, we had a half hour to meet with him. We didn't expect this, but as I was, it was a rain was pouring down. I had an umbrella protecting me from the rain, walking through the streets of Tirana, the capital of Albania, on my way to meet the prime minister. And I felt as if God said to me, Wayne, you're going to meet my servant. Romans 13, 4. God's servant for your good. He's a Muslim. Wayne, you're going to meet my servant. That's what Romans 13, 4 said. Well, I had opportunity to meet with him. And I had edited a study Bible called the ESV Study Bible, so I brought along a copy. And um, I said to a Mr. Prime Minister, do you know that Albania is mentioned in the Bible? I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> okay. The only thing is, it's not called Albania. It's called by the name of the ancient Roman province, Illyricum. In Romans 15, Paul says, I've preached the gospel from Jerusalem around as far as Illyricum. I underlined that verse in Romans 15, and I opened the Bible to that, and then I pointed out to him the note, which I had written, which said, <laughs> Illyricum is what is now called Albania and what was formerly part of Yugoslavia. He looked at it, he read the note, he said, this is true. <laughs> he knew the history of Albania. I said, Mr. Prime Minister, could I turn back the page to read something else that Paul wrote in the New Testament? He said, yes. I went back to Romans 13, 4. I said, here it says that the civil government, the civil leader, is God's servant for your good. Mr. Prime Minister, I think this is God saying to you that you are his servant to do good for the people of Albania. He was touched by that, as far as I could tell. And we talked about some other things. He, talked, he asked me questions about Bible translation and how we could get the meaning right from ancient Greek, and he'd studied Greek, and it was quite a fascinating discussion. But that is not keeping religion out of the public square. That's saying God's people, as they have opportunity, should speak Christian influence into, the, into government, into the public square, because the civil government is God's servant for your good. And I think as Christians have opportunity, you can do that all the time when you vote. You can vote in a way that tries to bring Christian influence on government. You can do that if you give money to a political campaign. You can do that if you go door to door and hand out literature for a campaign or put up a sign in your yard or anything like that. You're seeking to influence government in the way that you think is good. This view that we should keep religion out of the public arena out of the public square, this was never adopted by any state legislature. It was never voted on by Congress. You know how it became a law or an assumed policy in our country? Well, actually, a law. It became law because it was jammed down our throats by an overly zealous Supreme Court in two decisions in particular. In 1947, the Supreme Court decision, Everson v. Board of Education, and in 1971, a Supreme Court decision called Lemon v. Kritzman. <clears throat> and in that 1971 decision, the court said, the actions of government must not have the effect of hindering or advancing religion. And there it said religion in general. Now, prior to that time, the United States Constitution hadn't said that. The Constitution said... 
in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, for them, establishment of religion meant an established church, established and supported by the government. They had come out of England, where you had the Church of England as the official church, and the government supported it and said, this is the official church. And in fact, our, our, our founding fathers had come out of a background where they remembered how people had been put in prison for not going to the Church of England. And ministers had been put in jail for not preaching according to the Church of England's teachings. And they said, we don't want an established church like that where the government enforces one certain religion. So Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. But they didn't intend to rule out religious talk or religious speech from the public square. They said in the, Decla the Declaration of Independence mentions God three different times as the creator, as God, and as providence. And uh, they, that's the foundation document that gave birth to our nation. And it doesn't keep God out. So the Supreme Court forced that on us. And that is the view that is promulgated more and more. But I want to encourage Christians to say, no, we should bring God's good news, God's testimony to bear in the public square. And this second view, government should exclude religion, is wrong. Third, the third wrong view. First wrong view is government should compel religion. Second wrong view, government should exclude religion. Third wrong view, government is evil and demonic, and Christians should stay away. <laughs> this is a view, it's not, it's not a very common view, but it's a view promoted by a Minnesota pastor named Greg Boyd in an influential book a few years ago called Myth of a Christian Nation. And in it, Greg Boyd says, Satan is the acting CEO of all earthly governments. Very interesting. And so he says when the government uses police power to restrain evil, or when the government sends out military power to defend a nation, that's Satan's work. That's not God's work. Satan is the acting CEO of earthly governments. Why do I disagree with that view? Well, it's because it's not what the Bible says. Romans 13.4 does not say that the civil authority is Satan's servant. It says it is God's servant for your good. Now, I know governments do wrong things. They make mistakes. They have some wrong policies. But the overall perspective of the Bible is not that government is Satan's servant, but the government is God's servant, and that it is right for Christians to be involved in it, not that Christians should stay away. So that's the third wrong view. Fourth wrong view out of five. The fourth wrong view is Christians should do evangelism, not politics. That is, we should just preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not spiritual to get involved in saying we should vote this way or that, or should influence government or work in government. That might be something that some people do. It might bring about some good, but it doesn't do any spiritual good, doesn't advance the kingdom, doesn't save people. Well, first, before I respond to that, I want to say I think the, the, the central message, the main message of the Bible is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the main message. We must never forget that. But the main message isn't the only message. The Bible says a lot of other things. 
And in particular, it tells you a lot of things about how to live once you've trusted in Christ. And the general category that that falls under in the New Testament is called good works. Oh, wait a minute, you tell me. I've heard from my pastor that we're not saved by good works. That's right, we're not. But what about after you're saved? Then what are you supposed to do? Nothing? (laughs) Bad works? (laughs) Wrong, wrong. Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds or good works, depending on the translation, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then let me read Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. This is the central text that people look at again and again about justification by faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I agree with that. That's what we call in theology justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. But what is the next verse? The next verse tells how we are to act after you've trusted in Christ. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So as soon as Paul says you've been saved by faith alone, he says, now go do good works. That's God's purpose for you. If you go to any Bible-believing church, my guess is that your pastor talks a lot about good works. Does he teach you, if you're married, how to have a good marriage? How to live as husband and wife? He should. I suppose he does. Does he teach you, if you're parents, how to raise your kids and how to relate to your, relate to your children? If you're children, does he teach you how to relate to your parents? Those are good works. That's, how about teaching you to love your neighbor as yourself? It's a good work. How about teaching you to care for the poor or the homeless or those who have substance addictions of some kind? How about, do you have a divorce recovery ministry in your church or a financial counseling ministry to help people who are struggling with finance? Those are good works. They're teaching people how to do good works. Does your pastor ever teach you how to live in the workplace and be a faithful employee? Does he teach you how to live in the business world and how to carry out good business transactions? Those are good works. Well, if your pastor teaches you about all those other things, shouldn't he also teach you how to influence government for good? If you influence families and marriages and children and schools and hospitals and businesses and education for good, shouldn't you also influence government for good? Or do we have to leave that out? See, I think the Bible, rightly understood, comes to influence all of life and to transform all of life. And that includes transforming government. So I don't agree with this do evangelism, not politics view. In fact, uh, the Bible has quite a few verses that talk about doing good works. I'm going to t- I shouldn't do this as a public speaker, but I'm going to tell you that when I got done speaking this noon, I didn't put my pages back in order, and I have no idea what my next point is. <laughs> <laughs> Pause for a second. I'm going to find it here. It's not any place to be found. Okay. And now I know it's not there. Don't tell anybody I did this. Here we are. Ah, this is what I wanted. Galatians 6.10. So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Um, 
If I love my neighbor as myself, don't I want good laws for my neighbor? Don't I want a parental notification law that requires that parents be notified before an underage girl has an abortion? Isn't that seeking the good of that child and the and the of the of that girl who is pregnant and the and the girl's child? It's good. That's loving my neighbor as myself, seeking a good law that gives protection. Don't I want a good law that will protect my neighbor's marriage? That will protect my neighbor's savings and business investments so that they won't be defrauded. I, I want good laws if I love my neighbor. And so loving your neighbor as yourself is a way of doing good works, and it is pleasing to God. When people say, this doesn't do any spiritual good, I just disagree. If it's what God tells us to do in the Bible, it is spiritual good. And if you don't go away from this meeting this evening with anything else except this, it is to say, if God puts on your heart that you need to do something to try to influence government for good, God's favor is on you. His pleasure is on you. You can do that not just thinking this is kind of a secular activity that doesn't mean anything to God. You can do it saying, Lord, I'm doing this as unto you. I offer this service to you. I'm trying to help society for good. I'm trying to do good work so I bring glory to you. And you can, I think, rest assured that God's favor and blessing is on you. And that is eternal good that will that will actually, that God will say to you at the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. This was good and pleasing to me. I began to do some research to ask whether Christians have done any good for government earlier in history. And I was surprised by what I found. There's a historian named Alvin Schmidt who has written about this, and I I, I tell some of these things in this, in this book, Politics According to the Bible, but I'll just read you some examples. After the Christian faith began to spread, it had more and more influence in the Roman Empire, and pretty soon it got to the point where it could influence the laws and the government in the Roman Empire. And one thing that happened was, under Christian influence, laws were passed in the Roman Empire that outlawed infanticide, that's putting little babies to death, outlawed child abandonment, and outlawed abortion. 374 A.D. A little while later, under Christian influence, the Roman Empire outlawed the gladiatorial contests in which one contestant was cruelly put to death. Outlawed 404 A.D. Under Christian influence, Property rights and other protections were eventually granted to women as well as to men because of the Christian conviction that Genesis tells us that women and men are both created in the image of God, Genesis 1 and 27. Under Christian influence, a law was passed in India that prohibited the traditional practice of burning widows alive with their dead husbands, 1829. A law was passed that prohibited that. And a law was passed that prohibited the cruel practice of binding young women's feet in China, 1912. In many cases throughout history, it was Christian influence that led to the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire, in Ireland, then in much of Europe. And in fact, there was a member of parliament in England named Wilbur, William Wilberforce, Wilberforce 
confessed that the, for him, the Bible was the completely reliable, trustworthy word of God. He was a born-again Christian. And Wilberforce, as a member of parliament, worked 40 years to abolish one of the most profitable businesses there was in the entire British Empire, and that was the slave trade. And Wilberforce got the slave trade ultimately abolished in the British Empire in 1807. Now, you think for a minute, if you know anything about history, the British Empire was the most dominant force in the entire world in 1807. The saying was, the sun never sets on the British Empire, because someplace it was always daylight in different parts of the British Empire, and the slave trade was abolished in 1807. The entire British Empire abolished it. And then slavery itself was abolished in the British Empire, 1833, under the influence of Wilberforce. And then Wilberforce died. He'd given his life. He'd given his life to that cause, to influence government for good. In the United States, in the 1830s, an increasing number of people joined what was called the abolitionist movement, campaigning for the abolition of slavery in the United States. Two-thirds of the leaders of the abolitionists in the United States in the 1830s were Christian clergymen who were preaching politics from the pulpit, saying slavery is immoral, it's wrong, and the laws have to be changed. You see what I mean by influencing government for good? More recently in our history, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., was a Baptist pastor who preached politics from the Bible. He said racial segregation and discrimination were wrong and the laws of the country had to be changed. And so whether you go back to the ancient history of the Roman Empire or even to our recent history, we find that Christians have been active in influencing government for good. And Jim Minnery and the, Arizona, the Alaska Policy Council in getting laws changed that protect human life, that protect marriage, that protect uh, freedom of religion, I think you're carrying on the same tradition that has been so good throughout history and the history of the Christian church. These changes in government happened because Christians realized if they could influence government for good, they would be obeying Jesus. They would be doing what Jesus said when he said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now some people say, oh, it doesn't matter what kind of government we have. The church will do just fine, no matter what the, whether we've got a bad government or a good government. And I say, you don't, you don't have any idea what it's like to live under an oppressive government. I've been in China, and I've talked secretly with leaders of the underground church movement who, I mean, man, four of them were going to meet with us. Quiet knock on our door one night. One of them comes in. He looks around, sees it's not a government trap. He calls the others, and five minutes later, they show up. They live in constant fear. And when we were there, we were there just, this, just a year ago, and we're constantly thinking the government is listening in on us and who knows? We hear stories of people being taken away. They just disappear. But let me give you... Oh, and then in China, if, you, if you're parents, you can't have more than one child. You get pregnant with a second child, there's forced abortion. The child's put to death. One family, one child policy for years. Government doesn't matter. It matters a lot. But let me give you two other examples two extremes of different governments to show how governments affect the church. 
North Korea and South Korea. Same language, same ethnic heritage, same geographical location in the world, but different governments. North Korea is under a totalitarian communist government that is so oppressive that literally millions of people have starved to death. And if you read statistics about the church around the world, how many Christians are there in North Korea? No known Christians. Now, I've talked to some people personally who have contact with North Korea, and they tell me that there are some secret Christians in hiding there in North Korea, but they don't have a church, and they can't worship freely, and they can't evangelize except on fear of death. And I do know this. Millions of people have been born, grown up, lived, and died in North Korea without ever having the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I do know this. There is no missionary activity going on from North Korea at all. By contrast, South Korea has a government that allows freedom for the church. Revival has been going on. 15% of the population, maybe, are born-again Christians who trust in Jesus as their Savior. They've had massive influence on the government, and they're printing Christian literature, and they're sending missionaries throughout the world. What's the difference between North and South Korea? Only one difference. Different kind of government. The kind of government we have has a big influence on the church, and we can have kind of government that's on every place on the spectrum between those two extremes. There is really a difference in the government and how it affects the church. All right, that fourth mistake is do evangelism, not politics. And I think we should do both. Because the Bible teaches both. Well, we've had four mistakes. Government should compel religion. Government should exclude religion. All government is evil and demonic. Do evangelism, not politics. The last mistake is the opposite of number four. It says, do politics, not evangelism. <laughs> this is the view that if we just campaign hard enough, and if we just get the right laws and the right people elected to office, well, our country's going to be just fine. And that forgets the main thing. Forgets the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a movement in the United States in the early 20th century called the Social Gospel Movement. And that was just trying to transform society, but they neglected believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They neglected the gospel of personal salvation. If the, if the nation is going to be transformed, we need, first of all, we need to preach the gospel so that people's hearts are changed and they want to obey the laws. But we need, secondly, simultaneously, we need good laws so that laws will encourage right and good behavior and protect us from evil and protect us from wrongdoers. So that last mistake, that do politics, not evangelism, is certainly wrong. After those five errors, is there a right view of Christian involvement in politics? I think there is. I'm suggesting it's this. Number six, significant Christian influence. On government. Significant influence isn't trying to compel religion. It's trying to talk. It's trying to persuade. It's trying to discuss and dialogue. And then people vote. And they vote to see what the laws are. That's 
That's what happened with the civil rights legislation in the 1960s. There was a national conversation and people voted and the laws were changed. That's what happened in the British Empire with the abolition of slavery. Wilberforce talked for 40 years <laughs> and the laws were changed. He persuaded. He wasn't trying to impose or compel. There are examples in the Bible of God's people bringing influence to bear on secular governments. Go way back to um, the book of Genesis. Genesis 41-40, we find that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, appointed Joseph to be ruler over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. There was Joseph, now realize this, he's a Jewish person, believes in God, is faithful to the God who created heaven and earth, but he's second in command over a secular kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt. Very interesting. Fast forward to Daniel 4.27. Daniel is an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar at that time, around 600 BC, was the most powerful man on the earth over the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel 4.27, Daniel says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Now note that Daniel did not say this. He didn't say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you are a Babylonian. I am a Jew. I would not presume to impose my Jewish moral standards on you. You have soothsayers. You have astrologers. Follow them. Follow your own heart. You'll know what is right. That's a wimpy answer, but it's not Daniel's answer. Daniel said, King, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your mercy, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Daniel brought God's testimony of right and wrong to bear on secular government. Think of Esther. If you've read the book of Esther, Esther and her uncle Mordecai had massive influence on the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus. Esther risked her life going into the king's presence, but she saved the Jewish people from destruction. And then Mordecai was appointed second in command over the kingdom. Go to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1.11. Nehemiah says, I was cupbearer to the king. That was, we know from historical investigation, that was a position of high influence in the, king of Persia, in the kingdom of Persia. A lot of examples in the Old Testament of God's people having influence on secular governments for good. Go to the New Testament. Read Luke chapter 3. You find that John the Baptist rebuked Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was a Roman official called a Tetrarch, ruling over Galilee. John the Baptist rebuked him for two things. First, it says he rebuked him for taking his brother's wife, was incest. But then it says he rebuked him also for all the evil things that Herod had done, Luke 3.20. That was a long list. That included a lot of things that Herod had done as Roman ruler in Galilee. He rebuked him for all the evil things that Herod had done. John the Baptist paid a big price. He was beheaded, but he was faithful to God. And then Paul. In Acts 24, Paul was on trial before the Roman governor, Felix. And it says that Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. The word reasoned there, the Greek word dialegomai, the meaning of it is to 
have a discussion back and forth, and it's a present participle in Greek. It indicates that there was an ongoing conversation that extended over a period of time. That means, I think, that Paul was talking with the Roman governor about different policies that he'd had, and he said, this is what righteousness consists of, and, and this is self-control, and there's a coming judgment, and you're going to be accountable to God for those policies. Remarkable. When I was younger, I once had an appointment with Congressman John Porter, who was my representative to Congress, well, I didn't have a conversation. I mean, it was a, it was a public reception, and you had to get in line and stand in line, and I knew I had just a minute to talk to him. So I thought, I got just one question. What's my one shot at a question? And this guy, he was, he was a Republican, but he wasn't uh, pro-life. He was opposing all Republican. He was kind of a more liberal Republican, and he wasn't supporting laws to, uh, that would restrict abortion in any way. So... I, Get through the line, come up, come up a little farther. Okay, it's my turn. Congressman Porter, my name is Wayne Groom. Nice to meet you. Thank you, he said. Congressman Porter, when you stand before God at the final judgment, what will you say to him about how you voted on laws concerning abortion? <laughs> I thought I had one chance, one question. Why not use the best question I could think of? He paused for a minute. And then he said, well, I think I would say to him that I supported the Hyde Amendment and such and such. And I talked back and forth for a minute. And then he said, well, maybe we can, can pursue this some more. So um, I wrote it. He said, send me a letter. So I sent him a letter. He wrote back. I sent him another letter. I got a phone call. Congressman Porter would like you to meet with him in his office next time he's in Deerfield. So I went and talked to them. I thought I'd get five minutes. He gave me 45 minutes to talk to him about what Exodus 21 said about protecting the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn child. And I brought Lincoln's second inaugural address. Remember, this is Illinois, where Lincoln had come from. And I looked with him at Lincoln's second inaugural address, and in that amazing speech, that amazing speech, Lincoln says, basically, that the Civil War, which had cost hundreds of thousands of lives, he says the Civil War is God's judgment on the nation because of the sin of slavery. And Congressman Porter had been a legislator in the state, in state legislature in Springfield before he went to Washington, and he had some knowledge of Lincoln's history, and he looked with me at this, and he said, because, let me, let me read these words. The Almighty has his own purposes. This is Lincoln in March of 1865. What Lincoln doesn't know is that within four weeks, the Civil War will be over. He doesn't know within five weeks. He'll be in heaven. But he says this. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. He's quoting Jesus. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? 
fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. Abraham Lincoln is saying, if God destroys this nation because of the evil of slavery, we must stay, we must stay still. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. And we could not complain. with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And I said to my congressman, Lincoln said, if God destroys the nation because of the evil of slavery, God is still just and righteous. Is there a possibility that God would bring judgment on this nation for our evils, and particularly for the evil of murdering millions of unborn children? I don't know what effect it had on him, but he listened very attentively and thoughtfully. Christians have a responsibility, I think, to influence government for good as God gives us opportunity. What I'm going to do just to kind of get some topics out on the table here is walk through some of the other chapters in the book, give you like a two-minute summary of each chapter. There are 18 chapters in the book, Chapters 1 and 2 I've already talked to you about. It's uh, five wrong views, and then advocating the right view is chapter 2, significant Christian influence in government. Chapter 3 is biblical teachings about the role of government in general. I'm going to skip that now. Chapter 4 is Christian worldview. God created everything. He gives us his moral standards, things like that. I'm going to skip that. Chapter 5 talks about what I think is the most, is the greatest problem facing the United States today, the excessive power of the Supreme Court. You may think that we are a government that's a democracy or that's uh, governed by a democracy, but in fact, the most important issues in our nation are not any longer decided by the people that you send to Washington. The most important issues in our nation, sadly, are decided by nine justices on the United States Supreme Court. So to give you a couple of examples of the excessive power of the Supreme Court, um, 1973, the Supreme Court said, in, in contradicting the laws of all 50 states in the Union, the Supreme Court said, every woman who wants to has a right to an abortion in the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. 
and you say to the Supreme Court justices, where do you find abortion in the Constitution? Oh, they said, we just discovered it. <laughs> it's in these words in the 14th Amendment, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That amendment was passed in 1868. It was to guarantee that freed slaves after the Civil War had the rights of all citizens. So it said, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. You say to the Supreme Court justices, I don't see the word abortion in there. I don't see this as anything about abortion. Oh no, they said, you have to look more carefully. So I read the words again. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I don't see abortion in there. Well, it's not really there. It's in the shadows and penumbras from the shadows that are between the words. You see, what the Supreme Court is doing is it's making up a new law. And it's saying, oh, this is the Constitution. You say, it's not the Constitution. They say, we're telling you it's the Constitution. So it is. And nobody has any appeal beyond that process. It's sad. Because, you see, in answering the question, who shall have the highest power in a nation, different countries in history have given different answers. Some countries have said it'll be the king, a monarch. Other countries have had dictators who took power by having the most guns and the most soldiers. Other countries have had anarchy where nobody's in charge. That's Somalia today. Other countries have had a democracy where rulers are elected and the president is the highest official or has the most power or the prime minister. But our founding fathers, when they established our country, had a different answer from all of, those, all of those ideas. It wouldn't be a king, it wouldn't be a dictator, it wouldn't be anarchy, it wouldn't be an elected official who has the highest power in the nation. In fact, our founding fathers said, no person will have the highest power in the nation. It will be a document instead of a person. And that document is the Constitution. That's great, as long as judges don't try to change what the Constitution says, as long as they rule according to the original meaning of the words of the Constitution. Then we're governed by a document. But if, if judges come along and say, oh, we think people should have a right to abortion, so we'll pretend it's in here, and we'll tell you it's in here, and you say, where is it? I can't see it. And they say, well, it's just in the shadows between the words. They didn't say between the words, but that's what shadows means. Well, then we're no longer ruled by a document. We're ruled by other people's ideas of what that document should say but doesn't. That's happened recently in the Supreme Court in Iowa, where the Supreme Court, in its decision, Varnum v. Bryan, recognized that only 28% of the population of Iowa wanted to approve same-sex marriage. But that didn't matter to the Supreme Court of Iowa because unanimously the Supreme Court of Iowa ruled that, that same-sex marriage had to be allowed in Iowa. Why? They found it in the Iowa Constitution where it never was. It didn't exist. But they forced it on the people. Excessive power of the Supreme Court and the Supreme Courts in, in states. So 
I think that's the greatest problem facing the nation. We're no longer functioning as an effective democracy, a representative democracy where the will of the people is done. We're functioning with a tyranny of unelected judges who are appointed for life and accountable to no one. Nobody ever elected these justices. And in fact, we've got four liberal judges who make up their own new rules and say they're in the Constitution. We've got four conservative judges who stick by the words and what they meant. And we've got one man in the middle, Anthony Kennedy. And if he goes with the conservatives, that's the decision. If he goes with the liberals, that's the decision. You get a five to four vote. The nation's important decisions are all being made by one man that was never elected to any office, has no accountability to anyone, and is appointed for life. That's not the kind of government that our founding fathers set up for us to have. The only solution, I think, is appointing more justices to the Supreme Court who say, we won't insert our own ideas and say they're part of the Constitution. We're going to rule according to the original public meaning of those words. And that's what Justice John Roberts, the Chief Justice, that's his view, Anthony Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito. Those four justices hold that view of judicial restraint of original interpretation. So I'd say that's the biggest problem facing the nation for the long term. That's chapter five. Chapter six, I talked about the protection of life. Uh, chapter seven says marriage should be between one man and one woman. I will talk about that for a minute. Marriage is the most foundational institution in a society. Marriage existed be between Adam and Eve at the first uh, moment of the creation of the human race because it says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam and Eve were the pattern for marriage. They were the first married couple. The Bible defines marriage as between one man and one woman. The United States in 1845 faced a crisis. Would it admit Utah to the Union. Congress said no, because Utah had polygamy. Husbands had more than one wife. And they said, Utah, you cannot become a state unless you change that. And for 50 years, from 1845 to 1895, the battle went on. Finally, in 1895, Utah was admitted to the Union, but only after it had amended its constitution to, re, to uh, prohibit polygamy and say marriage must be between one man and one woman. In other words, the United States, through that controversy, decided that the nation must have a uniform definition of marriage for the whole nation. Arizona, where I live, had the same requirement. It was admitted to the Union in 1912, but it also was required because of a large Mormon population it was required to have in its constitution that marriage is just, that polygamy is outlawed and marriage just can be between one man and one woman. So that's marriage. Someone says to me, what does it hurt you if two homosexuals are married and they call it marriage? The question isn't whether it hurts me. The question is what is best for society? What is good for society? And I argue in this book that as a Christian, think that homosexual conduct is contrary to the moral standards of the Bible, so I don't think government should approve it and encourage it and support it and endorse it, which is what marriage is. And that homosexual conduct is harmful to the people who, involve, who are involved in it. What you don't often see is, for practicing male homosexuals, there's an average loss of life expectancy of 25 to 30 
years. 25 to 30 years average loss of life expectancy through practicing male homosexuals. Do I want government to encourage that kind of practice by calling it marriage? I don't think so. And so I'm arguing, what is best for society? This is best for society. And society, I think, also has said what is best for raising children is for children to have a dad and a mom. If there are single parents, we'll support them, we'll help them. But what we want to encourage and what we want to promote is a dad and a mom together in marriage, and they have this legal agreement to be husband and wife and to protect and care for children, have the responsibility to raise children. That's the, that's the relationship that best nourishes and nurtures children, and that's what we want to promote as a society. That's what society has said through its laws, and I'm trying to persuade that that is right today. On the chapter on the family, I'll skip that. Um, chapter on economics, I've talked about that. The environment, you can ask me about that if you want. I think, oh boy, Israel. I'll say something about Israel. Um, Paul says in Romans 11 uh, about Israel, uh, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. I better read the verse. Romans 11. These Jewish people, well, Paul was a Jew and he had accepted Christ, but he's talking about the Jewish people who had rejected Christ. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, Romans eleven twenty eight. but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. As regards election, they are beloved of God. It seems to me there's a purpose of God that still has um, special favor and protection on the Jewish people, and I think that applies to the nation of Israel. Now, why is there conflict between Arabs and Jews in Palestine? Well, you have to go back in history and say in 1947, there was a United Nations resolution, and the United Nations resolution said, we're going to authorize the establishment of two new countries, one country will be Israel for the Jewish people, and the other country that will have these boundaries and these parts of this, of this land, and it will be right alongside them, and this will be a country for Arabs living in Palestine, and they'll have their own nation too. And here's what they'll do about Jerusalem. Here's, here's how they'll share access to Jerusalem. Here's the way their money will be exchanged. Here's the way their economic system will work. It was a detailed outline for the establishment of Israel for the Jewish people and an Arab nation in Palestine for the Arab people. Israel said to that 1947 resolution, yes, we want to do this. And in May of 1948, Israel was established as a nation. Twelve minutes later, President Harry Truman recognized Israel as a nation. The United States was the first to recognize Israel, and 130 countries around the world have recognized Israel. The Arab people in Palestine said, no, we don't want to, we don't want to have a separate nation. We don't want to follow this uh, United Nations resolution because we refuse to accept the fact that Israel can exist. And to this day, the Arab nations around Israel have refused to allow the Arabs who fled from Palestine to become citizens, by and large. And, they've, they, and the Arab people within Palestine have refused to acknowledge the existence of Israel as a nation. So now I say, what is there to negotiate? 
Are you going to negotiate whether you can exist or not? Israel's not going to negotiate that. So peace talks between the Arabs and the, Pal and the, and the Jews seem to me to be doomed from the beginning until the Arabs say, we will acknowledge the existence of Israel as a nation and its right to exist, rather than saying, we're going to drive them to the sea and, and destroy them. So that's, uh, that's my, I don't know why I talked about Israel, but I just decided to choose a few other issues. Well, I said we'd do Q&A. I guess I'll ask, I'll just say, if, if there's an issue I haven't thought about or talked about, then I'll just say I don't know, but um, go ahead. Open season for questions. What's your name over here? 